And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, June 22nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, 100 new ways the government gets wrapped around its axle. Plus, a DHS advisor finds a way to ground airborne human trafficking. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, early next year, the Army plans to host a new exercise in combined joint all-domain command and control operations. It's called Project Convergence. It'll combine the U.S. armed services and those of allied nations. The Army will test communications, data, and sensors to see how well it all gels, using lessons learned from the 2022 operation. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr got more from Army Staff Mission Command Division Chief Colonel Oz Ortiz. So for Project Convergence 4, what uh, Army Futures Command is rebranding Project Convergence now is more of a capstone event, as in like it's going to be the culmination of several exercises that are going on between now and March of next year. So between events like Scarlet Dragon, that 18th Airborne Corps continues to execute at Fort Liberty, or what USERPAC is doing in the Pacific with, with uh, Talisman Sabre and other exercises, all those exercises are going to inform what Army Futures Command is going to get after at for PC Capstone 4. The List of objectives is still being developed. So as an example for Project Convergence 22, there were a list of eight specific objectives that were identified for Scenario A and Scenario B. We're not at that point yet, but what we're trying to do is based on the lessons learned from PC-22, data management, uh, how do we employ sensors, how do we bring in coalition partners, that's going to be an important part of what we're going to get after in PC-4. Can you be specific about what some of those lessons you did learn from 2022 were? So, so one of the ones is the ones I just mentioned, specifically, access to data is no longer a problem. Uh, we have enough data. We are receiving enough data. Now the problem is, what? how do we turn that information into actionable information? We are overwhelming the operators. We are overwhelming leaders. In some cases, we're overwhelming our own systems. Through the example I made earlier today that you have a a common operating picture with 100 green dots. What does that mean? That is one of our critical lessons learned. How do we turn information or data into actionable information for commanders or soldiers at the edge to do something with that information? So that's part of our biggest challenge right now. And how will Project Convergence problem solve that specific data problem? I think what Project Convergence is going to enable us to do is to continue to create scenarios or exercises that bring in really the total force, because part of that just within the Army, we bring in multiple echelons, guard, reserve, and component, which as you might know, it's they're all fielded different in different capabilities. So that's one. We're bringing coalition partners. In this case, we're, I think we're bringing back the UK and Australia. We're trying to expand that to non-5I partners in addition to our coalition partners. I'm sorry, our sister services, Air Force, Navy, and Marine, which were big participants at PC-22. As we build this exercise, I think we're going to create scenarios that are going to test our ability to exchange and pass information between all those forces in order to get after a specific objective. How will it look different from 2022? 
I so I don't have all the details yet as it's still being planned. But I think what General Rainey intends to do is just make it a mar build on what we learned on PC 2021 and 22 to make it now more of a theater level engagement, uh, higher levels of echelon, higher requirements for information exchange. So we're certainly not trying to duplicate what Guide is doing, but we're trying to make sure we cr increase the scope of the level of information exchanges, not just talk tactical, what we're referring to as platoon, company, battalion, elevate to brigade and division, but bring in cores and theaters as part of that scenario. So again, as General Rainey and the AFC team continue to build that, we get more fidelity over the course of the next few months, but I think that's part of his intent. Make it larger uh, with the higher echelons as part of the exercise scenario, those scenarios. And you had mentioned that some of the exercises coming before that will inform what you do, like uh, Scarlet Dragon. Is there Are there specific things that came from that exercise? I think what we're trying to learn is what is General Donahue and 18th Air Corps doing with AI and machine learning? I think that's part of the biggest takeaway of what they're doing in 18th Airborne Corps, specifically uh, with Scarlet Dragon. So that's what uh, their lessons learned need to inform what scenarios or, or uh, injects we're trying to create as part of PC4. Same thing with General Flynn in the, in the Pacific. The, the series of exercises doing as part of Pacific Pathways, those are also informing what we're doing with PC4. What specific objectives, what scenarios do we need to create or further test in order to make sure we're validating data exchanges. A very common one that we exercised with both scenario A and B of PC-22 was logistics. Contested logistics was a very common exercise, a common lesson learned that we try to get after and how do we build on it for PC-4. And how much will the other services be involved? So we have an open invitation to the services. Right now, the Air Force and the Navy and the Marine Corps, similar to, to what they did to PC-22, are a part of our planning efforts so we can identify what requirements they have and make them part of the process. We expect they'll be involved. At, at this point, I don't know at what capacity, uh, but we expect them to, to participate just like they did the previous iteration. And how about JADC2 or CJADC2? How will that play into it? CJADC2. So I think uh, at a core, uh, and back to the conversation we had earlier today, had, how, how do you find CJADC2? Uh, I think we're leaning on OSD to help us build that definition, but in essence, it turns still into an information exchange. How do we create a data mesh that enables the exchange of information, not only within the Army, but within the services? I think for us, that's part of the CJADC2 challenge is information exchange changing, but as OSD and the CDAO continue to build on guide, as guide six uh, finishes its, its execution through the end of July and the planning efforts come up to guide seven, I think we will learn from guide and what they're getting after for JATC2 and make that part of our PC capstone uh, uh, objectives. And I know you've gone through this, but just briefly explain how Guide works. Uh, Global Information Dominance Exercise is an OSD-sponsored event that currently is operating at the, the, or the command command level. What does that mean? Uh, Northcom, CENTCOM, Southcom, at that level, the OSD Chief Digital uh, and Artificial Intelligence Office is running that exercise to, enable, uh, to test information exchanges between theaters. In a very simplistic way, I think that's how I would define it. Uh, but again, as OSD continues to build caveats and brings in more combined commands in the, into the equation, it'll further inform what we need to do with JATC2. Can you speak a little to the challenges of interoperability as you do all that? 
mention it this way, right? So every, every combatant commander has very specific set of information exchange requirements. What uh, Indo-PACOM is doing in the Pacific versus what we're doing in Europe, for example, is very different. I think the challenge at the CDAO level is understanding what those specific data exchange requirements are, how you bring them up to a distributed information layer, which is what they're creating at DIL, and ensure that information passes between one combatant commander to the other. I think that's their challenge in operability. How do we get specific combatant commander requirements and enable for them to exchange from one theater to the other? Army Colonel Oz Ortiz speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a DHS advisor finds a way to ground airborne human trafficking. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Not all human trafficking takes place in trucks and boats. Sometimes perpetrators fly their victims around. My next guest led an effort by the Homeland Security and Transportation Departments to train aviation personnel on the ground and in airplanes how to identify potential victims of human trafficking. It's called the Blue Lightning Initiative. And for his work, he's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Michael Kamal joins me now in studio. Mr. Kamal, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Tom. And you work for Homeland Security, not DOT, correct? That's correct. All right. Tell us about this program, Blue Lightning. What's it all about? So the Blue Lightning Initiative, it's actually a joint effort with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the U.S. Department of Transportation. And basically what we do is we train aviation staff on what the indicators of human trafficking are and how to report it to federal law enforcement. What are some of the indicators? I mean, you look on an airplane load nowadays and everybody looks a little suspect. Well, when people think of human trafficking, they typically think of the most extreme cases, but oftentimes the indicators are very subtle and the trafficking victims might look like your average traveler. However, every once in a while, there's uh, little red flags and things that you can look out for. One example is if someone doesn't have control of their passport or their visa document. Another example is maybe it doesn't look like they have the freedom to do things that normal people have the freedom to do. And just getting back to the documents point, someone else is controlling it like a big bad daddy-o type of person might be the one not letting that person have control of their own papers. It could be an older person. It could be a man. could be a woman. And what's usually a red flag is when the person looks like they're old enough to carry the passport on their own or the identification. Got it. All right. What else can people look out for? Freedom of movement or social interaction. Let's say a ticket counter agent is asking a question to someone, and that person could answer the question, but someone else steps in and answers for them. Another thing that is very important is a non-genuine relationship. And oftentimes this gets construed as just because a child looks different than the parent, that's not necessarily the indicator. What the indicator is, is what is the behavior? Does it look like that parent cares for the child? We've had cases where the traffickers will offer to pose as the victim's parent just to get them through airport security. Wow. All right. So you know what to look for. How do you then go about making sure that the chain of people that a traveler would encounter in aviation, how did you go about making sure that you could sensitize people to this information? So that's what the Blue Lightning Initiative is all about. We actually have a 25-minute training video that teaches about the indicators and also reporting. We secured a significant number of partnerships, uh, 125 partnerships over the past several years. Just last year alone, we trained over 214,000 staff. Uh, And basically what we're teaching them is the basics about what human trafficking is, what those indicators are, and how to safely report it to federal law enforcement. 
What makes human trafficking go by air instead of by some other means? Is that a different objective of the trafficking? It's just one of the modes that traffickers can use. They can use buses. They can use rental cars. They can use cabs. Sometimes the human trafficking is happening within someone's own home by family members. That's called familial trafficking. Uh, But what we found is that airports are a controlled environment where people can observe the indicators that they otherwise may not be able to observe. And airport employees and airline employees are in a very unique position to make a difference. Right. We're speaking with Michael Kamal. He's senior advisor at Homeland Security and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Now, this training video, is this then available to the airlines and the airport authorities and all the other people that they can then retrain? Because it's pretty hard for a couple of people at DOT and DHS to reach hundreds of thousands of people. That's right. It'd be impossible for us to reach the amount of people that we reach without our partners. So we have a memorandum of understanding. It's a free partnership that we offer to all U.S. airlines and airports. And we recently just expanded so that now foreign airlines and airports can participate. And so they sign the partnership agreement and then we give them the training and they train their staff. And then we'll also do some other things through conferences and awareness events. Yeah. So the video is just part of the package that you have to offer. Yes, that's right. It's just one piece of a whole collaborative effort. And another example is we have these indicator cards, these lanyard cards that we'll ship out to all of our partners and nationwide so that if a pilot or a flight attendant, if they see those indicators, they know exactly who to contact. This idea kind of germinated from the fact that a pilot did spot something at one point. And that's how you've learned that perhaps, yeah, maybe other people could spot just as well as this particular pilot. Well, that's exactly the reason Homeland Security and Department of Transportation, why we do what we do, because airline employees have uh, the power. Had it not been for that pilot, Homeland Security would not have known about that victim. And what we've heard from survivors is this is happening more often than we think, not only in the commercial airports, but also the small regional airports where private aviation occurs. I'm sure you're familiar with the Jeffrey Epstein case. That was a big scenario where he would transport his victims through private air travel, and none of those staff knew what to do or knew how to report it. Another big case with Homeland Security is the R. Kelly case, and he also transported his victims. But it's not just famous people that travel through private air terminals. It's other high-wealth individuals. And so we're trying to train not only commercial airport employees, but everyone, uh, because you never know where this crime might happen. Yeah, general aviation, it's a lot looser, and it's more casual, and people come and go without all of the rigmarole that happens in commercial aviation. So that's probably attractive to traffickers if they can afford it. Yeah, that's right. And there might only be a couple staff located at those airports. And thankfully, we've had a significant amount of support from the industry Uh, The National Air Transportation Association, several other companies that run fixed-base operators, they're getting involved. And we just recently did a big webinar to raise awareness. So the support is definitely increasing. And what kind of feedback have you gotten? Have they found people? Do you have a way of measuring how many perhaps trafficking situations have been stopped as a result of blue lightning? We've gotten some great feedback from partners. The partners are taking the training. They're seeing the indicators and they're reporting it in to Homeland Security. And then we're investigating and looking into it. The data is very limited. When the calls come in for Homeland Security or for the national hotline, the primary goal is to make sure that victim gets the support. It's not necessarily to ask whether air travel was involved. However, the data is alarming. Uh, Just last year alone, there were over 15,000 human trafficking cases from the hotline. The International Labor Organization estimates that there are 27 million victims globally. And when you talk with the survivors, you hear the stories about how they traveled through all these different airports. 
And, you know, at that time, no one knew what it was or how to report it. But I think we're in a better position now. And as this campaign continues, we're going to be able to stop those situations and prevent them from even occurring in the first place. And my other question with respect to the airlines and the airports concerns the transportation security officers themselves. They've got a lot to look at. They're very highly occupied. Are they part of the uh, Homeland Security apparatus that can spot this kind of thing? Absolutely. So Transportation Security Administration, they are a part of Homeland Security. And our campaign, the Blue Campaign, we actually train those staff as well. And also the entire DHS Homeland Security Enterprise. What I'd like to highlight is that the Blue Campaign and Blue Lightning Initiative is now a part of what's called the DHS Center for Countering Human Trafficking, which is the first DHS center to counter solely human trafficking. And it's comprised of all the Homeland Security components. So you just name one, that's TSA. Everyone knows that. They go to the airport. When they get interviewed before leaving a country or or entering a country, that's Customs and Border Protection. They're a part of it. And it's all led by Homeland Security Investigations, or HSI. And those are the folks that are out there investigating trafficking and also making sure the victims are connected to resources. By the way, is the CLEAR program part of this? Because I think that would be an attractive way for traffickers to kind of hustle someone through onto a plane because it's an expedited type of thing and it's pretty cheap to sign up for. So CLEAR is one of our Blue Lightning Initiative partners. They signed on a little over a year ago, and they've been training their staff. And how did you come to this? You're a fairly young guy for getting a Sammy's nomination, and what's your background? So I'm just a guy from New Jersey. Uh, I went to school in Rhode Island. I did a federal internship through Homeland Security that ended up leading to this anti-human trafficking job five years ago. And I didn't think I would be here for the amount of time I was. But once you start working on the anti-human trafficking mission, it's very, very hard to stop. It's such a, an impactful mission, and you know I really love what I do. Are you a law enforcement person? I mean, what's your domain? Just a program manager? I mean, not just a, but you know what I mean? You're not law enforcement officially. That's right. Yeah. So I'm not a law enforcement officer. What I do is raise awareness. My sole job is to raise awareness. Our law enforcement HSI agents are out there. Uh, They're investigating the crime. We support them by raising awareness, by setting up partnerships with airlines, with airports, with schools, not just the aviation, but also other entities as well. We're raising awareness. I go out there. I do presentations. I speak on panels. Some companies, when you first start to talk about human trafficking, they get a little antsy. They think, you know, this is not a crime that I really want to be associated with my brand. So we kind of change that narrative to say, we want you to be a part of this mission because the crime is happening whether we like it or not. Uh, so we want to be a part of the solution. And part of my job is to establish those relationships and, you know, just make sure everyone is aware about what this is, because when we're more aware, we can better address it. Michael Kamal is not just a guy from New Jersey. He's also senior advisor to the Homeland Security Department and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, should federal employees feel relieved by that debt crisis resolution? But first, 100 ways the government gets wrapped around its own axle. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Fragmentation, duplication, and overlap. There's too much of it in federal government programs. It degrades economy and efficiency. Each year, the Government Accountability Office details instances of multiple agencies doing the same thing or nobody doing it completely. This year, it found what it calls 100 new matters. Here with highlights, the GAO's Director of Strategic Issues, Jessica Lucas-Judy. Jessica, good to have you back. 
Hey, good morning, Tom. And just briefly for people that may not be aware of this great list every year, fragmentation, duplication, overlap, just give us the quick definitions of what those are. Sure. So fragmentation is where you have multiple agencies or more than one agency that are trying to serve a population or, you know, deliver services and they could coordinate better. You know, sometimes it's difficult for recipients to be able to find who to go to when they have questions or there's different rules that make it difficult to deliver those services. Overlap is where you have agencies that are serving similar populations or similar types of goals. And then duplication is where you're actually serving the same people or providing the same services. All right. And each year you identify where this is across the government. And your recommendations, unlike most GAO recommendations, are to Congress itself for fixing a lot of things legislatively. That's right. We have both kinds of recommendations in this report. So the 100 new recommendations that we identified this past year, some of those are to executive branch agencies and some of them are matters for Congress where there are things that need to be fixed legislatively. And what are the highlights of these 100 new matters? Four of them are defense, which is already a big source of duplication and overlap in many ways. But what did you find in defense that has popped up? Well, some of the new areas that we identified for this past year relate to the fragmentation that I was talking about, where there are multiple entities within DOD or DOD and some of its partners that are fragmented and they could be better coordinated. And so artificial intelligence is one of the areas that we identified where the research that's going on and ways to use artificial intelligence effectively for defense and supporting the warfighter need to be better coordinated and you need a strategy for managing those. We also found one of the areas that we've highlighted in prior years, but continues to be an issue, is in Navy shipbuilding, where it's important to make sure that the contracts are in place, and we think that you could save billions of dollars by more effectively managing those programs. Got it. And you also mentioned DOD predictive maintenance. Military services should each designate a single entity with sufficient authority to do this kind of program. And when you say the military services should each designate, that doesn't mean one for the entire Defense Department, but maybe just one for each armed service, which would reduce fragmentation and duplication. Right. So predictive maintenance is instead of waiting for something to break and then fixing it, which can lead to backlogs and not be always the most efficient way to manage maintenance, to use data analytics. We've got a lot of information that's available on when certain services might be needed. And each one of the services within DOD could designate an entity that would help manage those programs and cut down on maintenance backlogs. And how do you philosophically determine which types of activities should be consolidated, deduplicated, or whatever, versus those that maybe need to happen in a diffuse manner? AI is a good example. Every agency can think of a way to do AI for its own mission. So should that be centralized, or should whatever is trying to be centralized disband and let everybody pursue their own? I make the analogy of cafeterias. You know, every building needs its own for practical purposes. You couldn't have a single centralized cafeteria for the entire federal government. Exactly. Right. And one of the things that we emphasize in our work is that just the presence of duplication or of overlap by itself is not necessarily a bad thing. What we're identifying is ways to better manage that duplication or that overlap or the fragmentation and try to make it work more effectively, more efficiently. And that enables the government to be able to serve more people or to reduce costs and to have money that's available in other areas. One of the examples in this year's report is on broadband. 
So you've got the entire country is trying to make sure that people have access to broadband, whether that's for you know education or for healthcare even, or for job searches or for doing work online. You know, it's really important to have high-speed internet available, and, and there are people who don't even have reliable broadband. And you have more than 130 different programs across 15 federal agencies that are trying to address this problem. And, you know, some of them are serving different populations. Some of them are providing the infrastructure. Some are providing devices. Some are providing training to be able to use these things. And we're not saying that those need to be eliminated, but you do need a strategy to make sure that across the government, they're all working towards similar goals and they know who's responsible for doing what and to share information more effectively to make sure that we're getting what people need. We're speaking with Jessica Lucas-Judy. She is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And this kind of duplicative effort and fragmentation happens in international affairs, which must really be confusing for overseas recipients of U.S. largesse. Right. That's another area that we identified several places where a strategy or better coordination was needed, whether it was in providing AIDS relief in other countries or another one of the areas that we identified was in commercial diplomacy or state and commerce departments should make sure that they were using leading practices in collaboration to manage the fragmentation in the support that they provide to businesses, to U.S. businesses working overseas. Okay. And just to add all of this up, I mean, what does GAO estimate is the cost of all of this fragmentation, duplication, and overlap? And how much could Congress save if it, you know, nailed down every one of them, which is a stretch? Right. Well, just to preview a product that we have that's going to be coming out in a few weeks, we are attempting to use models to estimate more precisely the amount of savings that could be available. But so far in the the duplication and cost savings body of work that we've done, we've identified more than 1,800 recommendations to Congress and to federal agencies. More than two-thirds of those have been fully implemented. And so far, we've identified about 600 billion dollars in savings that's been realized from addressing those recommendations. With the 527 recommendations that are still open, we think that there are tens of billions of dollars in potential savings that are out there. One example that we highlight in the report is a recommendation to Congress from a 2016 report that we did. And this was for Congress to direct HHS to equalize payments in Medicare between the place of service. So whether the services are provided in a doctor's office or a clinic or a hospital, to equalize those payments for the same services just depends on where they're provided. And that the Congressional Budget Office has scored that as $141 billion in savings just from that one recommendation alone. And some of these things linger for years, as you point out, like one of them is sale of unneeded federal real property. This is the General Services Administration in general is responsible for this. They've been hacking away at congressional mandates and programs to try to identify and then dispose of properties for at least a decade. And, you know, a few little parking lots and ramshackle garages have been gotten rid of, but they're still large, vacant areas. And I don't know, somehow it never seems to happen. 
That is an area that's been on GAO's high risk list for a number of years now. And one of the things that we highlighted in this year's report is that there was an effort that GSA had underway to be able to dispose of unneeded property. It was supposed to happen in three phases. And the first phase, they were able to sell and, and receive about $195 million in sales. But when it came time to moving on to the second phase, the board that was supposed to oversee this was, you know, some of the members had left. So the effort sort of has fizzled out a bit. And so we're recommending that GSA coordinate on identifying lessons learned from the, the first couple of phases and implement those going forward. And if they find that there are legislative barriers, that they identify ways that, that Congress could make changes to help them do that better in the future. And do you ever identify areas where maybe the government just shouldn't be doing anything in the first place, like shutting down some programs? We have identified programs in some places where in prior years where we felt like there was you know, sort of too much duplication or duplication in a way that wasn't effective. And we've made uh, recommendations to agencies and to Congress to be able to eliminate unneeded programs, whether that was overlapping programs in STEM education or in subsidies that were being provided for certain types of fuel that were then duplicating efforts that were there elsewhere. And so we've identified those in prior years, too, and been able to make some changes. Jessica Lucas-Judy is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with the latest fragmentation, duplication, and overlap report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, should federal employees feel relieved by that debt crisis resolution? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Resolving the debt ceiling did get Congress a little closer to a 2024 budget deal. So what does it all mean for your pay and benefits? We check in with the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association's Vice President John Hatton. John, good to have you back. Thank you for having me. Now, there is no, you know, appropriations bills. They're back to debating them now a little bit. So there could be something, a CR within three or six months of the actual beginning of the fiscal year ahead. Right. But what do you take away from this? What's important here in terms of pay and benefits? Well, first of all, it was nice to see that there weren't any cuts to federal benefits as pay-fors to adjust the overall spending caps that they agreed to in these deals. So in the past, some of these kind of congressional budget deals, spending caps deals have been part of the negotiations, whether cuts to federal benefits. Uh, Back in 2013 and 2014, there were increased contributions for new hires into the federal government. So they're now paying more. That was part of one of these spending cap deals. The big headlines were over the debt limit being extended and us preventing default. But paired with that was an agreement for overall numbers on defense and non-defense spending, both in fiscal years 2024 and 2025. And so that will have implications for the appropriations bills that actually set the agency budgets. And there was a a 3.3% increase in defense, I believe. There's actually in the bill about a 5% decrease in non-defense spending from 2023. But it's clear that there were some side deals with regard to some other budgetary authority clawback that would allow them to raise that non-defense figure to basically stay flat for the next year. Those are still tight numbers because you have to deal with inflation, federal employee pay raises, and the like. So therefore, if they're tight numbers, it's not going to affect really employees at all. It's going to come out of acquisition budgets, grants budgets, information technology, that kind of thing? 
likely, but it's still possible for in the debate over appropriations for Congress to talk about what the federal pay raise would be. Now, in President Biden's budget, it was that 4.7% across the board, or I think he calls it a 5.2% average with that 0.5% increase in locality pay. If Congress doesn't say anything in the appropriations bills, that will go into effect. You would expect an alternative pay plan in August and then an executive order in December. But I wouldn't be surprised if Congress, or at least some in Congress, start talking about whether that would be the full number because they will have these tight caps. And if they want to avoid cuts in programmatic budgeting or if they're in an appropriations bill that has heavy salary and expenses versus programmatic, I think it could be in play. My hope is that it's not and that even if it is in play, that it still goes forward with what's in President Biden's budget. That idea of years ago of increasing the employee contribution to the retirement funds, and as you said, at some point, those hired after a certain date pay more in than those hired before that date. Have you heard anything from the Hill that anyone's actually raised that one again? I haven't heard that one lately. That might have been in the Republican Study Committee budget. Not the Freedom Caucus far right, but kind of the next level, more conservative, kind of more mainstream conservative group or caucus in the House had a few cuts to federal retirement benefits in there. I believe the increased contributions was in there, but I'd have to double check. So it's still floating out there, whether it might be equalizing it. So employees pay half and the agency pays half. I think the normal cost is around 14 or 15 percent. So that would be going from that 4.4 percent to something like seven Even right now, that's a big chunk out of your paycheck. And the benefit now on FERS is still that much lower benefit. And so it takes a while for your contributions to actually result in a valuable pension. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So that means that you are forced in some sense to set aside more for your TSP because that's Mm -hmm. going to be a bigger part of your package, so to speak, when you do retire. Yeah, if you're taking out 6.2% for payroll taxes, 4.4% for the new hire contribution, and you want to add 5 or 6% on TSP, you're taking a huge chunk out of your paycheck before you even hit income taxes. So there are a lot of upfront costs to saving for retirement in the federal system. You'd come out with a nice package of Social Security and FERS and TSP, but you're putting in a lot of money into those systems. And at the senior levels, listen, they don't leave government and retire fully very often. I mean, a lot of people right. take second jobs <laughs> in the private sector. Sometimes they do really well. You know, that pension is kind of a cushion. We're speaking with John Hatton. He's vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. And I guess the other thing we could talk about here is whether this deal on the debt averts the idea of a shutdown since they do have the caps. And presumably, you know, there's a number that's going to be appropriated and maybe less chance of a shutdown, even if there's a CR. Yeah. So I think it does lessen the chance of a shutdown. One of the elements of this deal is this automatic 1% decrease in spending or kind of a sequestration that would happen if Congress passes a CR and does not actually pass those appropriations bills by January 1st. So I don't know why they didn't make the deadline the start of the fiscal year, but they didn't. And the deadline for them is really January 1st, which they typically, you know, not always, but often are passing those appropriations in December. So I think there'll be a big push from defense hawks in Congress to avoid that, because instead of getting that 3.3% increase in defense, which some people were already upset about, there would be a 1% decrease. And so there'll be a number, 
I, I think of defense hawks pushing on the Republican side to make sure a bill goes through. Is it guaranteed? No, but I think there are political pressures and a system set up that lessens the threat of a shutdown. All right. So what else do people need to know about this deal and what do they need to know about what's likely to happen to them next year, federal employees? Well, I think it was nice to see in the deal that the threat of default was taken off the table until 2025. So we have some time to go for that. Like I said, we have to pay attention to what Congress is doing on the federal pay raise because that's potentially still up in the air. And then just what other agency budget levels are set could affect people's jobs depending. And and it's not, um, I, you know, there were pretty big increases in agency budgets in 22 and 23. So staying flat or going up a little bit, maybe the agencies have some room there, but it is going to be flat or, or down on the non-defense side and a small increase on defense. So. All right. And speaking of legislation and legislative process, you guys have a training conference, an advocacy day. Yeah. I didn't realize federal employees could do that kind of thing, advocate (laughs) on behalf of legislation. You can. You know, there's the Hatch Act, but that sets limits on what you can do on the political sphere in terms of campaigning or running for elected office. But, you know, as a citizen, you have the right to lobby or talk to Congress about things that matter to you. And that could include things like your pay and benefits as a federal employee or a retiree. So it's an essential part of what we do at NARF and what other employee management union groups do is get people involved to be advocating on their own behalf. And so we have it biennially legislative training conference. So we have people come in. We have a few members of Congress talk to them, uh, have a couple kind of training sessions, like how do you prepare for those meetings? How do you do them? What are the issues we're talking about. And then we set up meetings with members' offices, and we'll have 200 plus meetings with members of Congress set up with our members. And so it really has an effect on making sure your representatives are looking out for your interests as a federal employee and retiree, that they're not cutting benefits. They really need to hear directly from the people affected for that to have an impact. In your experience, what makes a member of Congress listen to one group or another? How do you get their attention? And I guess my second question is, is it possible for them to ever listen to an individual that's well-informed, but maybe not part of an organized group? Yeah. On the individual level, I think you need to have some expertise on an issue for that to have an effect. And certainly as an individual, you're part of another group of individuals. So if a lot of people see something in the news and are upset about it and call in, well, you as an individual can have that effect. If it's not just you, it's you know 100 people, 200 people, 1,000 people calling into an office. In terms of groups and different people, you know, I think if you're able to get in, have that face-to-face contact, have several points of contact with the member, show that you're providing some valuable resources and facts, but also that you may be, you know, for our members that are going here, they're mostly our officers. So they're not only are they going there and talking for themselves, but they're talking for the people who are in their chapters and their federations. They're then a conduit for information to then tell everybody in their local district that, hey, I met with this member of Congress. They're doing this on the bill. They've supported our bill here or they don't on that. So there's certain members that are probably not going to agree with us or not support some of our issues, but there's plenty that are open minds and it, it also depends issue to issue. So some people might be open on supporting repeal of weapon GPO, but they might also want to cut federal benefits. So (laughs) it's interesting. Tell us more about what happens at your particular conference and training. Is it open sessions and where does it take place and what do people need to know there? Yeah. So this one is virtual. We've had in person before, but we had a successful virtual one last time and reduces some travel costs and things like that. You know, we have an open general session where we get, you know, opening remarks, some update 
generally on what we are doing on our issues. We'll have members of Congress. We'll have like a grassroots advocacy expert in our general sessions. We'll have a congressional staff panel where the staffers talk about their perspective dealing with constituents from the district office perspective, the personal office perspective, the committee office perspective, and both sides, both chambers and both parties. And then we have these breakout sessions where we talk about how to prepare for these meetings, what you can do outside of this particular advocacy day, and then also talk about our political action committee too. All right, but you'll have to bring your own Danish. Yes. <laughs> John Hatton is Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for the final day of Federal News Network's Cloud Exchange starting at 1. Today's theme is travel and transportation. Hear from experts like Transportation Department's Cordell Schachter and a panel featuring Customs and Border Protection and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Sign up now at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, June 22nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, 100 new ways the government gets wrapped around its axle. Plus, a DHS advisor finds a way to ground airborne human trafficking. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Army's planned update to its small business strategy coming later this year will mirror many of the initiatives outlined in the Defense Department's latest version from January. One focus will be technology transition, long a priority for the Army. For how the Army hopes to fill in the so-called Valley of Death, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with the director of the Army's Office of Small Business Programs, Kimberly Bueller. We have five integrator initiatives, we call them, uh, which is really targeting how we bridge the valley of death between the research and development phase and then going into manufacturing. So the Undersecretary of the Army unveiled those five initiatives in October, and we've been working very hard to get them executed this fiscal year. And I don't want to go into too much detail on them unless we have time later on, but, uh, you know, we're really, we're really focused in on that area of tech transition and commercialization. 
Let me just jump in. When you talk about the Army Small Business Strategy, how it builds on the DoD, and I know it's still under development, so there's only maybe so much you can say, but is it the type of thing where you say, here's a pillar that the DoD has laid out, how do we meet that pillar? And, and then we'll explain with, with metrics or goals or initiatives how the Army will take on a specific part of the DoD strategy. Is that, is that some of the thinking? That's exactly the thinking, that we'll take the principles and the major lines of effort that DoD is working on. There's obviously areas that we will be working directly with with DOD to implement their strategy, but then what else can the Army do? And how are what are the problems or the issues that we're facing, and how are we going to adapt within that line of effort to meet our needs? So one thing we're heavily focused on is opportunity. Right? How are we going to expand small business opportunity? It's We love going out and doing outreach and talking to small business. We do a lot of capability briefs throughout the fiscal year at our level as well as out in our buying command um, activity level. But we have to have the opportunities there. You can have 5,000 contractors capable to perform a requirement, but if that requirement's not set aside for small business or doesn't afford opportunity, then you're really not meeting your goals of advocating for small business. So we're heavily focused on that. We're laser focused on particularly that area of spend underneath the simplified acquisition threshold. We are not doing enough in that area, frankly, over the past few fiscal years. We've taken a hard look at that. We've established new goals, and we are establishing dashboards as well so that we can very quickly, easily see ourselves and track our trends and move that needle in a positive direction for small business. And ultimately, all of our small business strategies are about opportunity, reaching those right small businesses that can perform for us, advancing the number of small businesses, getting the dial turned on the number of small businesses in our industrial base. You know, we've seen that 40% decline, reversing that. Again, another big part of the DOD strategy that the Army is um, heavily focused in on. And we recently implemented those definitions that OMB came out with for new and recent entrants. And we are, you know, potentially going to establish goals for that. We're still talking about it, um, but we'll have the dashboards to track it. So, you know, regardless of whether there's a goal, it's something that we intend to focus on. The simplified acquisition threshold piece seems so easy. Small buys, pretty quick. You can do them through a schedule contract, through a credit card even. Is it just because it's so easy, you kind of, uh, it's easy to lose sight of where the small business can play, or is there something else going on? How are you trying to solve whatever challenges that the Army has faced? I think to a certain degree, it's taking your eye off the ball to a certain extent, right? We, we often focus on percentages, which really come down to dollars, right? Which doesn't equate to the number of actions, So you can meet all of your goals just by doing higher dollar value awards to a fewer and fewer number of small businesses. So we frankly hadn't been tracking the undersat spend for a few years. And when we took a look at it and we saw that there was an erosion, we were never really over more than 75%, but now we're down to 70%. So that's, that's a lot. That's significant. So I do think that part of it's working with our requiring activities to make sure that they understand that there is a sufficient number of small businesses in their particular area and that we need to move that spend. Some of those um, program managers or Army customers just may not know that there are 
highly qualified, technically sophisticated small businesses available to meet their needs. So sometimes it's just a matter of awareness. And we have all this data, right? We have all this great contracting data, and we need to make sure that we're utilizing that as well as the tools that OMB has built so that we've got that data transparency. The SBA also now has lists of contractors within the 8A program that have never received contracts. The undersat spend is the perfect area to start bringing in the new entrants because they're traditionally less risky and generally firm fixed price type of procurements. So we're really focused on that, not necessarily as a way to increase our overall dollar spend to small business because they are lower dollar value um, or increasing the percent, but definitely increasing and going after the, the new and recent entrants. There's two things there that I think are important to highlight. First of all, meeting your goals is very important, but if your number of contractors who you're using in the small business world is shrinking, that's a big detriment. You mentioned a 40% number. Is the Army doing a little better than the average, or is they're about at the same 40% when the industrial-based shrinkage over the last five or so years? It's shockingly consistent, the Army's numbers compared to the DOD numbers compared to the federal government. And we did do some deep dive analysis into this a little bit um, earlier in the fiscal year, late, late FY22 and into 23. We particularly looked at the area of research and development because that is so important to the Army's modernization portfolios and objectives. And we saw that we we didn't have the decline within that portfolio that we do overall writ large within the Army and across the federal government. So why is that? Well, I think when you start to look at what are the kinds of businesses and what are the kinds of dollars and what are the programs that we have supporting that area – it's a lot of SBIR and STTR funds, which is, you know, set as a proportion of your overall budget. So it's more consistent funding that enables us to maintain that industrial base. We don't see that necessarily everywhere else. So I do think that there's a lot of value in parsing out the data at different levels so that you can really see what's going on and see how other factors are going to um, impact your overall numbers. But it is shockingly consistent. Kimberly Bueller, director of the Army's Office of Small Business Programs, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a DHS advisor finds a way to ground airborne human trafficking. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.